But uh, let me let me go ahead just and open us up in a word of prayer. Let's bow our heads and open up our souls. Father, we come to you. We thank you that you give us not just an individual Jesus for ourselves, but you give us Christ, the Savior of his people. I pray you would help us to have the conviction to say, I believe. I believe. I trust. I look to another. I look to you. And we ask that your spirit would bless our time today. In Christ's name, we pray. Amen. Come on in, gang. Uh, <coughs> about the year 100, some of y'all know the story. There was a man who was killed. There were probably many men who were killed in that year. But, but a, a, around that time, there was a particular man who was killed. He was known as the teacher in Asia, the Asian teacher. He was known as the head of the Christian church in Asia. Not a pope, nothing like that. It was too early for that sort of stuff. But uh, his name was Polycarp. You may have heard him and know a little bit about his story. He was taken to the chief of police in the city. And he was asked to recant his Christianity. Just give it up and we, 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 won't, uh, we won't kill you. you know, if you just give in, no problem. He says this, how could I blaspheme my Lord and Savior? And then famously, you may know what he says next, I am a Christian. Simple. A couple of words in Latin, four words in English. I am a Christian. I am a Christian. He knew what he believed. He stood firm. When the time came and the lions ripped his guts out, he said, how can I fear dying once in my body when I can live forever? Why would I give all that up, he says. It's a strong, stirring moment. It's an example of the way in which the church grew. The church grew not by simply co-opting powers of the day, not by investing in uh, the right stocks, not by having uh, good uh, morality, the church grew, uh, though it may have done those things, the church grew by the blood of the martyr. The church grew by people who said, I know what I believe. I'm willing to die for it. And one of the beliefs that developed, one of the sayings that developed, one of the uh, statements that developed was this Apostles' Creed. We say it, you have it uh, there, you should have it there on the back of your, uh, your, your outline, your handout for, for today along with a uh, different creed. We'll look at that down the road. But um, th even the idea of a creed is kind of a silly thing. It's kind of a, a retrograde thing these days. It's seen as a relatively uh, brain-dumbing thing. It's a stupid thing, in a sense, to have a creed because we subscribe to the belief today in our modern world that you need to be an independent thinker. You need to think for yourself that the most courageous man, the most courageous woman, is the person who stands at the top of the mountain. Maybe you've seen that old 19th century German romantic painting. If not, you can look it up. There's the guy, his coats, you know, waving in the wind. He's looking over the icy cold mountain. He's staring at the peaks. He's the lone wanderer by himself. And that's our, that's our day. That's why you can go on YouTube and you can look uh, at the, the atheist, uh, the agnostic, the anti-Christian people, the folks who, quote, deconstruct their faith. You can listen to them. I've done it. You can listen to them. And it's funny because they all end up sounding the same. They're all courageous. They're all individually rejecting 
uh, the faith or the heritage they grew up with, and they all end up at roughly the same exact place. They all end up telling the same. And yet, there is this real challenge. It's what uh, Nietzsche said. I give you a quote here in your outline. In the Christian's world of ideas, there is nothing that has the least contact with reality. See what saying? Nietzsche says this. This is in, the, in uh, the Antichrist. He says, it is the instinctive hatred of reality that is the only motive at the root of Christianity. Right? This is what uh, the philosopher says. Look. Christians hate reality. Uh, Christians are uh, anti-reality. And just to give you a more modern quote, this is from the New York Review of Books, 2004. Some guy came down to the South and visited churches in the South. He says this, skepticism, empirical evidence, and book learning are in low esteem among Protestant evangelicals. That was almost 20 years ago. And uh, I don't think it's kind of changed that much. We don't like creeds. We don't like creeds outside the church, right? People don't like Christian creeds, but also inside the church. Inside the church, have you have you ever had somebody uh, you're talking to? You tell them you go to the to the rock, and you, you you they ask you, well, what's the, what's the, what's it like? And you, you tell them, well, you know, we we recite this creed thing a lot. They say, what? What are you doing that for? Aren't you an intelligent person? Aren't you someone who can think for yourself? You just repeat words that somebody puts on a page. That's dumb. That's, that's an intellectual suicide. Intellectual suicide, because you need to think for yourself. You need to be a free thinker, a skeptic. You need to examine critically every piece of evidence you come to, and don't you know that when you have a kind of top-down, bureaucratic, power-play church imposing their beliefs on you, you'll never actually believe anything right. This is the spirit of our age. Spirit of our age. Let's, uh, however, interrogate, if we can, for a second, this spirit of our age as we get into the question of a creed. <clears throat> Have you ever been to a, to a wedding where the folks made up their own vows? Show of hands. Been to a wedding? Yeah, I think most of us have. I've been to at least a couple these days. What do you think of, the, of, the, of that? You like it? Janet, no? You didn't? Uh, why not? What, what, what fell? Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. It's funny. Um, you know, people today are very skeptical about the uh, the past, and and if you look at wedding vows, you see it right there. I don't want to be traditional. I need to make my own. You know, one of the things in the past that makes wedding special is that actually you say words millions of other people have said in their wedding vows. What made it special is that you were repeating the same kind of words that your parents did, that your friends did at their weddings. And you weren't just expressing your own feelings. You were using the words that your ancestors had used and you're making them your own. You were using them, yes, but you're making them your own. But today, of course, we think that the, the best thing I can say at my wedding and the best kind of belief I can have about the world is one that I make myself hook, line, and sinker, from the bottom up. And that's why we are suspicious of creeds. This is why if you go to church websites, go to church websites and look up, we believe, usually it's in the about us section, and you click on it, your drop-down box, you click on what we believe. What will you find there? You will find very often statement of faith, 
And if you go to one church that has a statement of faith, you go to another church across America, a thousand miles away that has a statement of faith, I can almost guarantee you that if they're in the same general ballpark, they're going to sound the same. They're going to sound very similar. They're going to have the same kind of beliefs. They're going to sound fairly generic. They're actually often going to be a lot more wordy than the Apostles' Creed, which is an interesting side note. And the thing is, most of us, we see it in church, we see it in our world, are suspicious of creeds. We're suspicious of anything I have to sign. I, I, get, I get blowback when I go to the vet and take my dog because I read what they want me to sign. And they're like, nobody reads it. They just sign it. And I'm like, well, I, I, want, I want to read the fine print. That, that's who we are, right? And there's some, there's some benefit to that. You, 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 you do want to read the fine print. But there's also a tendency here especially when it comes to your wedding, when it comes to your marriage, when it comes to your church, when it comes to God, the, the paradox is that the thing about a, a, a statement of faith, like any company that has a mission statement, if you read the company, you get, go to Coca-Cola, go to Amazon, go to the companies, read their mission statements. They're all bland. They're all written by a committee. They're all the same, and they're all meaningless. The same bland, anemic garbage. You see it in companies, mission statements. You see it in churches, statements of faith. You see it in our own lives, our wedding vows. And the paradox is the individual confession, the individual personalized wedding vow, it, sounds up, it, it ends up sounding simply like an echo of everybody else around you. It's simply an echo of the present moment. When you personalize your wedding vow, where do you think you get the insight from? You go to you know the knot and you look up, Oh, wedding vows. You go to your friends and you say, hey, what's a cool wedding vow? You think back to that one time you went to the wedding and that gal said that thing. and Oh, that sounds really insightful. So you just end up repeating it. The answer is, of course, you still repeat things. It's just dumber things. You end up repeating things. It's just what everybody's saying around you. It's, it's not actually any, uh, anything that radical. It's very conformist, I guess is the point I'm making. The personalized wedding vow, just like the uh, individual corporate mission statement, just like the church, non-denominational church statement of faith, they all end up sounding the same, trying to be different. They try to be different. They try to be unique. But it becomes trivial, cliched. You want to make your wedding super special. You know it's very important. You know it's an amazing thing. And so what do you do? You make your own vows. And then 30 years in the row, when you're watching your wedding video, what are you going to say? I was wrong. Those are bad vows. Those aren't smart vows at all. I wish I'd made better ones. The harder we try to be special and unique, the more we seem exactly like everybody else. Why do we do this? And why does the Christian church particularly have a hatred or a disdain, a dislike of creeds? I think one, one key reason here is... A, a spirit that is anti-intellectual. There's a great book by a guy named Nathan Hatch. He wrote it a few years ago, maybe 20, 30 years ago, called The Democratization of American Christianity. And he traces the Second Great Awakening in the 19th century. He says, in 1800, in 1750, you had Orthodox Protestants, you had Calvinist Protestants who were presidents of Yale and Princeton. You had people in charge of the Ivy Leagues who were Christian. 
They were founded as Christians. And yet, 1850, 100 years later, 50 years later, the most famous Christian in America was Charles Finney, who said, just use the right ways to get people in the pews and you'll make them Christians. The proper use of the best, most practical means will make people Christians. Nothing of the spirit, nothing of any of that. A spirit instead of American pragmatism. And, and by and large, uh, the church today, in the last 200, 150 years, has imbibed that spirit. The spirit that says, I don't need book learning. I don't need to study. I don't need to read. I can read my Bible, I suppose, but don't, do, don't, don't study it too much. Just memorize some verses here or there. I have a very basic gospel presentation, and you'll get saved. And that's Christianity. This spirit of anti-intellectualism is, of course, not simply in the church. It's a reflection of our society. It's a reflection of why uh, conspiracies are all the rage these days. You can watch a video on YouTube, and you can read about some, con- some evil conspiracy. The-, the lizard people really are controlling the world. You can find videos about that. I suggest you don't watch them, but it's your time. You can do what you want to. Nonetheless, the fact that we are susceptible to these sort of things indicates that there is a spirit of anti-intellectualism, not just in the church, but in the wider world. And that spirit is actually a very arrogant spirit. It's a very proud spirit. Do you know what pride says? Pride says, I don't know something, and that's okay. Pride says, I don't know something, and actually, that's good that I don't know it. I don't need it. What does humility say? What does humility say? Humility says, I don't know something. I need to look into it. I need to examine it. I need to study it. That's what, that's what pride says. I don't know. That's good. Second, we see in this anti-intellectual movement, in this distrust of creeds, we see an arrogance that assumes all ideas are equal. Now, it's important to distinguish the fact that the, uh, the American Constitution, the nation that we live in, allows the expression of all ideas. That's one thing. That's not the same as this. Because we, can ex- we live in a country where generally, by and large, we can express ourselves, we come to the conclusion that, therefore, any expression is equally valid as the rest. Any expression of myself, of who I am, or what I believe, or what should happen, and what ought to be in the world any expression, any idea is equally valid. And that's just not the case. I think that's self-evident. I don't think I don't need to explain that to you. That is, there are some ideas that are better than other ideas. And, and finally, this, uh, this anti-intellectualism in the Christian church especially often uses one key word, balance. You Christians, you're too much about thinking. You need to be doing that's the way it typically comes across. We need to have a balanced Christianity. Now, of course, in, in some areas, there, there, there may be an overcorrection that needs to be redirected back to the middle. But sometimes this plea for balance is actually a plea for intellectual laziness, not willing to actually study. And so we say, well, I'm trying to be a balanced person, which means I don't want to do the work. I don't want to actually study and examine. I don't want to know what I believe Thus far, why we don't like creeds. I think the other reason, 
separate from this, is a focus on the symptoms of sin. The symptoms of sin. If I were to ask you, what is the most grave danger facing America today? I'm not going to. You can give me all sorts of things. I'm willing to bet that even here in this environment, some of y'all, myself, are tempted as well, would give me an answer that's primarily political, social, economic, inflation, right? The gas prices. If only we had more Christians in X, Y, or Z. Education, right? Those are all symptoms. And the problem, I think, for many of us, but one of the reasons why, why the creed is a problem for us is because we focus on the symptoms of sin. The symptoms. D.A. Carson has, I've, I've given this quote before, it's a good quote. D.A. Carson says this. He says, look, if, if God thought we needed economic help, he would have sent an economist. If God thought we needed political help, he would have sent us a politician. If God thought we needed social help, he would have sent us a sociologist. But God knew what we actually needed. He sent a savior. He sent a savior to redeem us from sin. Therefore, the greatest problem, here's the, here's the point. The great problem is the same problem that Polycarp faced when he was under attack. It is this basic question, are you a Christian? Do you see your greatest need is deliverance, not on a horizontal plane, but on a vertical plane, that your greatest problem is that you are unholy and there is a holy God out there. And everything else, all this, the problem is we focus on the symptoms. And in focusing on the symptoms, we actually miss the great disease, of the great disease, the soul, the spiritual condition of our lands, our churches, ourselves. I suppose the last thing, and, and why we need to study the Apostles' Creed, is that Everybody has a creed. This is why I gave you the, the fun little uh, poem on the back from Steve Turner, uh, British music journalist. He wrote on the Beatles. He wrote on U2. He wrote on uh, the Stones, I think, as well, others, Johnny Cash. So he, 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 you know, he knows his stuff. He also wrote poetry. He wrote this. Now, this, the date is 1980. That is 40 years ago. More than 40, you know, uh, yeah. 42 years ago, in fact, 43 years ago now. And yet it sounds like it'd be written today. I'm not going to read it all. I'll let you read it. I'll read a little bit here. We believe everything is okay as long as you don't hurt anyone to the best of your definition of hurt and the best of your knowledge. We believe everything is getting better despite evidence of the contrary. The evidence must be investigated. You can prove anything with evidence. We believe that all religions are basically the same. They all believe in love and goodness. They only differ on matters of creation, sin, heaven, hell, God, and salvation. And then he concludes, of course, we believe in the rejection of creeds and the flowering of individual thought. It's a great poem because it shows us the reality that I've kind of been hitting at already. You have a creed. Everybody in this room has a creed. Everyone you meet has a creed. The choice is not between you mindless drones and your Jesus creed. We don't believe in Jesus. We don't need this stuff. Or you Presbyterians or you Protestants and you, 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 believe, you, you, you recite creeds. You're just a drone. You're, you're, you're not thinking. We really think. No, no. The reality is everybody has a creed. Everybody has a creed. If you drill down hard enough, you're going to find what people actually believe. That's why Polycarp is so critical. When Polycarp was facing the lions, what, did, what was his final creed? I am a Christian. 
Therefore, in, our, in the next few months, we're going to look at this creed. Why, why use the Apostles' Creed? Any questions before I move on to this? Point two in your outline. Any questions or comments? All ideas are superior. I don't want to hear you. If you offend me, I'm going to put you in jail or beat you up. So, no, you're right, Jimmy. I mean, I think you make the good point that ideas are not neutral things. Right, that ideas put into play, put into practice, will result in, uh, you know, injustice. And, and therefore, if we want to hold to this, we need to actually hold to it strongly and positively. Um, but no, it's a, it's, a, it's a fair point. So, why the Apostles' Creed? You know, we, we recited, I, I try to make sure, you probably noticed this, I try to make sure that at least one service every Sunday we, we use the Apostles' Creed. Not always, but by and large, it's what we use most of the time. There are reasons for that. But why are we studying it here? And why has the Christian church looked at it and used it over the ages? Well, I say here, it's, it's lean, mere, not mean, lean, mere Christianity. It is a concise, basic formulation of Christian doctrine. Now, to be clear, not, uh, not everything in the Apostles' Creed is necessary for one to be saved. You do not have to know about Pontius Pilate, for example, to be saved, even though the creed has crucified under Pontius Pilate. You don't have to know who he was. That's not, that's not, uh, not required salvation. But in general, in its summary, it educates, it educates Christians. It educates Christians. Second, it's a pledge of allegiance, you might say. I grew up going to Baptist VBS church, and uh, every summer we would have our pledge of allegiance. You know, we'd have our morning time. We'd come in, uh, we assemble one fine summer morning in uh, Texas, and we'd have our pledge of allegiance to the American flag and our pledge of allegiance to the Christian flag. I'm not here to get into all that. I'm simply here to say that there's actually a pledge of allegiance the Christian church has had for 2,000 years. Roughly, the Apostles' Creed. We'll get into the history of it in a, in a few minutes. Moreover, more than just being a kind of lean, mere Christianity that all Orthodox, Protestant, Roman Catholic, all Christian uh, churches, more or less pure, all agree on, it's part of the classic trilogy of the faith. Yeah, trilogies are, are uh, good in movies. They're even better in the church. And the classic trilogy that the Christian church has used to educate children includes the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, and the Ten Commandments. Now, I suppose we live in a day where these things are seen as more kind of mature, more for adults than kids, and that's sad, I suppose. But over the past few years, we've covered the Lord's Prayer, we've covered the Ten Commandments, and now we're going to conclude. We're going to conclude our little trilogy over the years of looking at these, uh, these key tokens of the Christian faith. You just think about it. If you were to know and memorize and meditate and seek to understand the Ten Commandments, you would have a perfect understanding, generally, of the summary of Christian life. 
how you are to live as a Christian to God, how you are to live in love towards others, right? Life and love. If you were to memorize and understand and meditate upon and even use the Lord's Prayer, what would you have? You would have an excellent lifelong summary of how it is you are to speak to God, how you are to pray. I would guarantee you that if you grew up thinking and meditating and reading and studying the Lord's Prayer, your prayers would be far more rich. My prayers would be far more rich. We could do far worse than thinking through Christ's own teaching on prayer. There would be far fewer, perhaps, Father-like, like Father, Father-like, please, Father, Father-likes in our prayers. Not that those are inherently wrong, but uh, sadly too typical of our prayer. Then finally, we come, of course, to the, the Apostles' Creed. And not that this is not in any order. What does the Apostles' Creed do? It teaches us what we are to believe. What we are to believe. If we understand this, by and large, we will have a solid grasp on the basics of the faith. Now, the issue, of course, is that we were taught something else. I was taught something else. I was taught that Christian belief was something different. I was taught, maybe you were taught something like this. I was taught that all you need to know is the ABCs. I grew up in a Baptist church, and I was taught that really, uh, if you want to know the gospel, you can use one of two things. You can use the bridge, the bridge diagram. Again, show of hands, who here knows the bridge diagram? Very good. Excellent. Bridge diagram, right? There's a, there's a deep chasm, you know? There's a holy God on one side, an unholy sinner on the other, but Jesus Christ on the cross, and then you, at that point you draw a little cross and your napkin comes, and he is the pathway, he's the bridge uh, between you and God. And, and in its basics, that certainly isn't entirely incorrect. There's a lot of truth there. I always thought the ABCs, and maybe you all know the ABCs, right? A, B, C. All all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You included, sir. But B, believe, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And then C, confess Christ as the risen Lord. And when he returns, when he comes in due time, he'll take you with him into heaven. Don't you want that? Now, why would somebody come up with that view? Why would this be one of the uh, chief gospel presentations? Why would the bridge be a gospel presentation that I was taught at college? At college. Greg. Easy and yeah. simple. You know, just to, mm-hmm. to express your, your faith. Absolutely. It's easy and simple. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, and I think I think you're 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 on to something here, Greg, right? <clears throat> because just like we streamline our cars, just like we want to streamline our phones and our dishwashers and all the rest, we want to streamline the gospel fast. Because the more people you can speak to, the more souls you can save. Instant comprehension. Nobody's gonna get too tripped up on these words. Though actually these days maybe confess might be a 
tricky, tricky word to people to figure out. Um, but the question, and the question that often comes even to this day, I have conversations to this day, how little do I need to tell people to make them a Christian? How little does somebody need to know to be saved? What's the minimum? What's the lowest common denominator? Now, if you think about, just think about historically why this has come to, into play in the last hundred years, what's happened in the last hundred years? Well, the Christian church has lost influence. The Christian church has lost influence in America, in the West. And so what do we do in that situation? Many folks say, well, hold on now. We got to recover. We got to recover our, our power. We got to recover our numbers. We got to get to everybody. And, and we care about souls. And yet, if you think about ABC, all believe, confess, what does this leave out? What does this leave out of the Christian faith? Yeah, no discipleship. That'd be a good D, right? Discipleship. No, no discipleship. What else, Mike? Yeah. <laughs> what you're supposed to believe. Exactly. God? Yeah. Where's the Holy Spirit even? Um, uh, and a huge hyper focus on uh, personal regeneration, if I'm being polite and fancying it up there. But I think y'all point out uh, there's actually no way, really, for a person who, who gets that presentation to know what do I do next? What do I do next? How do I maintain? How do I grow? How do I? There's no sanctification, which is what you're getting at, Mike. You know, there's no church. There's, there's nothing at all. The story is told of Martin Lloyd-Jones that, uh, this is not my, I'm going to take too much time, I'll tell you anyway. The story is told of Martin Lloyd-Jones that he, he preached one sermon one time, and great preacher, and he comes out the door, he's greeting people at the, at the door, and uh, there was a homeless guy who had come in, you know, for the sermon, and he, he, he waited to speak to Dr. Martin, and he said, sir, your preaching changed me. I am a Christian. The preaching so affected me. I, 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 I'm saved. And you know what Lord Jones did? He said, okay. And went back inside. Why do you do that? Well, the next week. The next week. He preaches. He goes out. He starts greeting people. He sees the homeless guy. But he's, he, knows, he knows the homeless guy hadn't come in. Says, well, why didn't you come in? Oh, I'm not a Christian anymore. I'm back on the street. You know. Lloyd Jones understood one. He made a point there, right? His point is that um, in the moment, in the moment of deep emotion, the moment of uh, uh, deep supposed commitment to Jesus, it can actually not be really a commitment to Jesus, but, but simply a commitment to an atmosphere, a commitment to a feeling. That if you can't even take it a week, your Christianity is not worth much. It's not worth what Polycarp did when he gave his life. And therefore, part of, part of the call of the Apostles' Creed is for us to get more saving knowledge. This is a quote by Herman Vitius, an old Dutch guy. Uh, I'll be using his work. He has some good stuff. He says, he says this, uh, it's incumbent on every Christian to work to get more saving knowledge, lest perhaps we should be found ignorant of truths that are necessary. 
Has that thought ever come into your mind? I confess it. It was a little convicting to me as well. You know, do you ever fear that you might be found ignorant of things that Jesus Christ expected you to know? That's almost a, 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 that sounds like an awful question today. That's why it's helpful to read older people who, who may be coming at it from different, different angles. Or as Pope Leo I said way back in the day, he who is able to know but unwilling cannot be saved. See, when we talk about intellectualism, we talk about the creed, we're not talking about the edge cases. We're not talking about uh, folks whose, whose brains aren't, uh, aren't, aren't right, who, who, aren't, who are abnormal. We're speaking here about what the normal average, ordinary, everyday person who says, I am a Christian, should be able to know. And therefore, if you're able to do it, but you don't want to do it, if you're unwilling to do it, that's actually a sign that your heart's not in the right place. You don't want Jesus Christ. You don't want Jesus Christ. Um, moreover, as we think about the creed, it keeps us from focusing on the symptoms. And it keeps me, it keeps you from focusing on our hobby horses. I mean, you have your hobby horses. You have your things that you get really passionate about, your secondary issues. Maybe you're really passionate about Presbyterian polity and how the church is structured. That's great. That's wonderful. I'm happy to chat with you about that. Maybe you're passionate about baptism. That's great. Maybe you're just passionate about uh, something else. I don't know. But we have to major on the majors, not major on the minors. And studying the Apostles' Creed will help to do that. It'll refocus us on what is of chief importance. So that's kind of my spiel on why. Uh, any comments before I move on? Quickly now. Quickly now. All right, the history of the creed. The legend goes, the, the Roman Catholic will tell you that um, the creed was formed when each of the 12 apostles uh, set a line. The legend goes that Peter started off. He said, I believe, and then John. You know, it's always Peter and then John. There's got to be the first ones. Right, I believe, and then John said, "In God the Father Almighty." And then you know all, James pipes in, and then everybody all the way down to Didymus, you know Thomas Didymus, uh, Amen. And it's a really cute story. It can warm the cockles of your heart. It, of course, never happened um, for many, 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 many reasons. Not least of which, we actually have the recorded writings of some of those guys in the book we call the New Testament, and uh, they don't they don't write like that. They don't, they don't sound uh, like that. Um, secondly, uh, we, we have uh, stuff that sounds like the Apostles' Creed in the year 100, stuff that sounds a little more like the Apostles' Creed in the year 150, and then uh, we have Easter Sunday in the 3rd century. Easter Sunday, and I'll just pick 250. You can use any time, really, in the, in the 200s. You know what would happen the day before Easter Sunday that night? If you were in a Christian church anywhere in the year 250, you have a group of believers who sat up all night. They have been praying. They've been reading the Bible. They've been hearing instruction from the, the priest. And they're awaiting the most important moment in their lives. They've been praying for three years. Three years for this one day. What's going to happen? The rooster crows, dawn, Easter Sunday. They're led out to a pool of water. They take off their clothes. The women let their hair down. They remove their jewelry. They renounce Satan. The priest takes oil 
anoint them with oil. They are led naked into the water. They are asked one question. Do you believe in God the Father Almighty? They reply, I believe. And they are plunged into the water that raised up again. They're asked a second question. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, born of the Holy Spirit, and Mary the Virgin, crucified in a Pontius Pilate, dead and buried, rose on the third day, ascended in the heavens, sits at the right hand of the Father, will come to judge the living and the dead? Again, they say, I believe. They're dunked a second time. Third question, do you believe in the Holy Spirit and the Holy Catholic Church and the resurrection of the body? A third time they cry, I believe. A third time they are immersed. When they emerge, they're anointed from water with, with, with oil again. When they emerge, they're given well, a new clothes. They're given special uh, high-quality white robes. They are blessed. They are led into the church, into the assembly, the worship service, Easter Sunday morning, where for the very first time, they will share in communion. They'll share in the meal of communion. And then they are sent out in the world to do work, good works and grow in faith. That's how baptism is described in the, from about the year 220, technically. That's how baptism is described. And notice there, you see basically, not in all the details, but in essence, the Apostles' Creed. I think this is a really key point for us to realize. The Apostles' Creed is not some dictate of a church council. The Apostles' Creed did not come about because uh, you know, Constantine the Great said all Christians should believe it. It was not some Presbyterian guru in the sky who said, you must use this creed. No, 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 no. no. The creed comes from the grassroots. It comes from the, the basic form of initiation into the Christian church. It's a pledge of allegiance to God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's, the, that's why the formulation is Trinitarian. You know, a lot of our issues with the Trinity, a lot of people's issues, a lot of the Mormons' issues, a lot of the Jehovah's Witnesses' issues uh, with the Trinity would be fixed by simply knowing the creed. Simply knowing the creed. This was not some deliberate theological strategy. It was not a mission statement from on high. It came out of the church. And therefore, the ABC approach, the approach that I grew up with, the approach that some of y'all may have uh, even given yourselves, as quick and easy as it is, is actually not sufficient. If you need proof of that, look at the fruit. Look at the fruit of the, the churches that use the kind of bridge or the uh, just the basic facts gospel presentation, which leaves out a lot of basic facts. And so we come. We come to the creed. The creed. It was born as a syllabus for those coming to the faith. Three years they would spend on these words. Three years on these words. Before they were accepted as members in the Christian church. That is what produces Polycarp. People like him. That's what produces Christians who last, not just for a week like the homeless guy outside Martin Luther Jonas Church, but for a lifetime. You know three things. You'll do far better. You'll do far better. You'll grow far more. You'll endure far longer. You'll love more everlastingly. I don't think we have time to get into much more than that. Um, I'll make one last comment, though. The, the creed begins with these words, I believe. I believe. The I is, of course, personal, but not simply personal. Because as you say, I believe, you are quoting what 
billions of people have said before you. You are quoting what Palestinian Christians right now are saying. You, you're quoting what uh, Christians in Ghana are saying. You are quoting what your Chinese brothers and sisters under state-sponsored persecution are saying. You are joining yourself as an I to thee, to we. You are joining yourself. And you're saying, I believe. I believe. You know, the great theologian Augustine said, you can't live unless you trust. Most of the things you know about the world, like there's a Ghana, there's a place called Ghana. Have you been to Ghana? I haven't been to Ghana. How do you you know it exists? How do you know it's real? You haven't been to Ghana. You trust. You trust the map, you trust the pictures, you trust the videos, you trust the language, you trust what you hear. You accept testimonies that have come down to you from the past. You accept the word of people. You don't know who your dad was. You don't know who your mom was. You weren't there at the moment of conception. You trust your parents by saying, hey, mom, hey, dad. Are you really on my mother? This is Dr. Seuss, right? Are you my mother? You believe them because of trust. You trust the birth certificate has not been forged. You trust. And you want to trust. You want to trust. You, you don't need to seek independent verification that your dad's your dad, that your mom's your mom. Because there's love there. There's so much. There's, there's trust there. And you grow up better if you trust. That's kind of what we're getting at when we get to the creed. The creed provides that nurturing place for you to grow as a Christian. Jim, let me uh, just ask you to close us in a word of prayer. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your word and for the creed. Thank you that we can trust you. We ask you to guide and direct us by your Holy Spirit to apply our minds and our wills to your will and to know you better. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.